Good evening, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to RAND Europe's panel discussion tonight at the Festival of Ideas, Shining a Light on the Dark Web. I'm Kath, and I'm the Research Communications Officer at RAND Europe, which is a not-for-profit research organisation that is based here in Cambridge as well as in Brussels. At RAND Europe, we aim to help improve policy and decision-making through our research and analysis. Now, some of our recent research, and the reason you are all here tonight, has been focused on the dark web, a hidden part of the internet which allows people anonymously to pursue illegal activities, such as buying firearms and drugs. Two Rand Europe studies explore the illicit trade of weapons and drugs on the dark web, and researchers who worked on those studies will be speaking to us tonight. Introducing us to the dark web will be Giacomo Percy Paoli, a research leader at RAND Europe in the Defence Security and Infrastructure Group, where he leads the National Security and Resilience Research Portfolio. He will be speaking with Stein Horenz, who is the head of our RAND Europe Brussels office and an associate director of RAND Europe. Steve Welsh, who heads up the Dark Web Intelligence Collection and Exploitation Department, at the National Crime Agency will then speak. Unfortunately, our last scheduled speaker for tonight is unable to attend due to illness. Judith Eldridge is Professor of Criminology in the School of Law at Manchester University, and she was also a collaborator on both of the aforementioned RAND Europe studies. She has kindly allowed us to discuss some of the issues that she plans to raise tonight, and Stein will speak on her behalf. After the speakers are finished, there will be an opportunity for everyone in the audience to ask questions. Following that, we will head downstairs for our drinks, where there will be a few words from Paul Maria, Director of Communications at the University of Cambridge, and Lynn Saylor, Director of Communications at RAND Europe. I will now hand over to Jocko. All right. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Kat, for the introduction. And um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here to be the first speaker at the opening night of the Festival of Ideas. And the project I'm going to present you tonight is probably my favorite project since I joined RAND uh, five years ago. Favorite project for a variety of reasons. It's been challenging, it's been difficult, it's been different, it's been new. And all of these things are things that we love at RAND. These are the big policy uh, issues that we like to tackle with the research. And we're particularly proud when we can contribute to wider policy challenges when we're actually able to produce um, new new knowledge that can then be used by a wide range of stakeholders to improve their work. Uh, the next slide that I see here is emergency evacuation procedure, which is not part of my brief, but I think it would be very responsible for me to show it anyway. Um, this is the emergency evacuation procedure, people. So if we need to evacuate, here it is. Um, please take a moment to familiarize yourself with the location. Am I doing the briefing right? Okay. Perfect. That looks more familiar. <laughs> Fine. Going back to the dark web, which is the reason why I'm here tonight. Um, I want to start this briefing by uh, going back to uh, summer 20, uh, 2016 in Germany, uh, when a 19-year-old kid, uh, completely unknown to uh, law enforcement agencies, without any criminal previous criminal connections, uh, opened fire in... Uh, shopping mall in Munich, killing nine people and injuring many more. And after the event, 
uh, everyone was shocked, not only because of the tragedy, but also because everyone was thinking, how is it possible that someone that young with no criminal connections was able in Germany, and we're talking about a country in Europe that has one of the strongest and stricter gun regulations, how is it possible that this person could access a gun and enough ammunition to do what he did? Well, the um, answer to this question was probably more confusing than the question itself, because it emerged, and it, it was then officially confirmed, that this person uh, was able to procure the gun on the dark web. Um, now, there is a lot of confusion uh, around what is the dark web and what it, what it isn't. Uh, so as part of this presentation, I'm just going to run quickly through a very simple analogy that, technically speaking, is not 100% accurate, but is a close enough um, analogy for everyone to understand. So you can pretty much think of the web as divided in three main layers. The first layer is the layer that is referred to as the clear web. Now, in the clear web is where all the content that we normally uh, interact with on a daily basis is located. So everything that you can Google and access through your mobiles, through your laptops, that's part of the clear web. Now, if you think that the information out there is overwhelming, well, think again, because actually some studies have proven that only about 4 or 5% of the content is actually hosted on the clear web. A massive 95% is below the surface in the so-called deep web. So even if the connotation of deep can, can you know, uh, bring to mind concepts like, like sinister or, or, or dark, that's not really the case. The deep web really includes all the content on the web that is protected behind a login page, behind specific credentials. Think about academic databases. Think about the e-magazine you are subscribed to. And if you want to read the articles, you need to put in your credentials in order to see the content. That content is perfectly legal, it's just protected. And that's where the deep web is. However, there is a hidden part of the deep web that is so-called dark web. And in this case, not only you need special credentials and special privileges to see the content, but you also need to use special software that allow you to access a part of the web that is not uh, indexed, that is not searchable by normal search engines. I'm not going to go into any further detail because uh, uh, Steve later in his presentation will give a little bit better explanation of uh, what, is, uh, what is store and how you connect to the dark web. But for now, just know that uh, it's a part of the web that you cannot access using your Internet Explorer or Firefox or, or whatever. Now. Uh, another young man in the UK that was uh, arrested more or less in the same time period as the, the person in Germany uh, while he was planning a mass shooting in Newcastle uh, said, when interviewed, said that buying weapons on the dark web uh, was as easy as buying a bar of chocolate. Now, was he exaggerating? Uh, let's try to find out. Usually in this presentation, I ask the audience to raise their hand if they've ever been on the dark web, but tonight I'm just not going to. I'm going to assume that nobody in the audience knows what is the dark web, and I'm going to give you a little uh, live demo, if you don't mind. So let's say that you're interested in buying a gun on the dark web, and you have no idea how to do it. So like the average internet user, the first thing you'll do is open your web browser and Google dark web markets. Um, the moment you do that, 
you'll be exposed to you know millions of results of websites that are giving you step-by-step guidelines on how to access the dark web and how and what to do in it. One of the results uh, is this, you know, I just picked one from the list, Deep Top Web. It's quite a well-known website. Um, it has all sorts of information on many different markets. Uh, but the most important thing that you should focus your attention on on this page is the address under the URL column. Now, you will see that it's not very intuitive. You wouldn't guess it if you didn't know what it was. So you just click on it, and guess what? The page is not reachable. We just said that the dark web is that portion of the web that is not reachable by normal um, search engines and normal browsers. And here is the demonstration. However, if you copy the link and you paste it into a, a specific software, a specific browser called Tor that has exactly the same uh, interface as another, here we go. You know, you have reached uh, immediately within a few seconds your uh, dark web market login. Don't worry, this, this account doesn't exist anymore, so don't bother taking notes of, of the username. Um, and here it is. So this is what a dark web market looks like. It's very similar to Amazon, to eBay, or to any other uh, marketplace on the open web, legal marketplace that on the open web. And there is a reason why it's this. It's because it wants to be user-friendly, it wants to be easy to navigate, and it wants to give users a very uh, nice and good experience. Because the way that these markets do business is through user engagements. The more users are there, the more transactions they make, the more money the administrators of these markets make through small commissions. So normally markets have, uh, you know, uh, different categories of products, you can see them on the top left, but the purpose of this presentation was to buy a gun, right? So let's say you wanna buy a Glock, which is a very famous brand of handguns. Uh, pretty much every Hollywood movie uses one. So you just go on the search string, you type Glock, and here you go, you have uh, a bunch of interesting results, some of which will be what we call in research uh, terminology, false positives, which means that our results uh, that are really not related to what we were after. And that's because many drugs are named after weapons. So, you know, you could find a pill that is named Glock, uh, and this will show in your results, but that's not really what you're after. However, we were lucky here, and we found a listing for four Glock 17 with spare magazines. And here we go. And these are the details. In this case, the vendor is not giving away too much information about where he or she is located, because as you can see, just below the price, the ships to field is marked as worldwide. And this is you know, a very basic technique that vendors use to um, keep their location undisclosed. But interestingly, it says that the vendor is willing to ship worldwide, which means that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, even if you have zero connections to the criminal underworld in your, in your city, you can log on the dark web and within three minutes find a vendor that is willing to ship to your location um, a Glock. This doesn't mean that the dark web is necessarily the easiest way for you to procure a gun. There might be, you know, you might be living in a country where the street black market is just a few blocks away. 
but if you're not, this is a very powerful resource to look through. So how, if you're interested in, you know, for research purposes, of course, we are researchers. We're not there to buy guns. We're there to study the phenomenon. So what do you do? How can you gather data from the dark web and use it for research purposes? We used, in collaboration co with the University of Manchester and University of Montreal, we used a specific um, dark web crawler and scraper called Data Crypto. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with what a crawler or scraper is, here is another amazing animation. Um, so the way that the crawler works, it basically connects to the markets and then creates a local copy of each page that is hosted on, on the market. So the crawler is deployed on Dream Market. It searches for all the links present on each page and it navigates each page of the market to make a local copy and then bring it back to the surface offline where researchers can safely access the information and um, do their research. And this is the technique that we used. Uh, RAND Europe has been at the forefront of the dark web research in the last couple of years. We have delivered two main projects, one that looked at drugs trade on the dark web and the other one that looks at firearms trade on the dark web. Um, on this note, I'm going to hand over the floor to uh, my colleague Stein, who's going to brief you on the results of the drug study before uh, I come back and brief you on the results of the firearm study. Thank you. Thank you, Giacomo, and um, hello, everyone. Welcome. Um, I will talk about the results of the study that we did on drugs, and that study was commissioned by uh, the Dutch government, as you uh, may know, the Netherlands has quite a pivotal position in the European drug market. That is the offline drug market. It's uh, the main producer of cannabis. It's the main producer of uh, synthetic drugs, uh, a key hub for the uh, transport and international trade of cocaine. And the Dutch were interested if that role, that offline pivotal role, is extending uh, to the online world. And so, therefore, we teamed up, uh, as Giacomo mentioned, with uh, Judith Aldrich, who won't go to be here. It's a real uh, shame she isn't, because she's got a wealth of uh, expertise on this topic. And um, Montreal University. And uh, did exactly what uh, Giacomo just explained. Um, and we looked at four key questions uh, that I'll just try to go through uh, in, my, uh, in my presentation. First of all, to what extent are illicit drugs being sold online. Secondly, um, which drugs are being sold online and what are their revenues? Um, what are the transactions? How many uh, drugs are being sold? And what are the main trends over the last few years? And 2013 is really a pivotal year uh, in this case. That was the year really when the first uh, dark web market took off. Uh, I think many of you will uh, will be familiar with the name Silk Road, which became quite infamous at the time. It was the only big uh, dark web market uh, at the time. And just before it got busted in October 2013, uh, our colleagues, uh, Judith and David, um, did a similar study, and they scraped this market and analyzed uh, the results. So what we, are, what we were able to do a, couple, a few years later is actually compare our results with those of 2013 and see what the trends were. Finally, um, analyze 
the shipping from and uh, ship willing to ship to data that Giacomo just explained, and we can use those as uh, as proxies for the uh, um, for the vendor locations and the buyer locations. So what did we do? Well, I think Giacomo explained it pretty well. We used this tool, Data Crypto, and we scraped eight of the largest uh, markets that were around at the time in 2016. Um, that those eight markets have captured about 80% of all listings, um, and uh, we used the buyer feedback. So it's it's really similar to if you buy something on eBay, uh, you give a feedback, you give a score to the uh, to the vendor how happy you are with your uh, with your new CD, um, and we use that very feedback uh, that score as a proxy for a transaction. And then if we use that uh, feedback, we multiply it by the price, you can then calculate prices. And the shipping routes are analyzed, as I mentioned earlier, by looking at the vendor location. So where is the vendor shipping from? Shipping from the Netherlands, from the UK, from the United States. Um, and where is he or she willing to ship to? Perhaps worldwide or just Europe only, US only, etc. Combining those, you can actually look at shipping routes. So it was quite a bit of work because with a team of seven uh, research assistants in, uh, in Manchester, we coded over 100,000 listings. So they really just sat down and looked at all the, uh, the listings and coded them into different drug categories. We, uh, we really boxed every single listing into one of those eight uh, categories uh, with cannabis, uh, which includes herbal cannabis, but also hashish or your stimulants, which include cocaine, et cetera, et cetera. So having done that, we can look at what is actually being sold. Well, the simple answer to that is drugs primarily. We found 3,846 3, vendors, and um, we looked at double counting because, of course, the same vendor can be uh, operating on multiple markets. And 71% of them sold drugs. So a minority uh, of them sold other products, so no drugs at all. So really what we uh, can conclude here is that crypto markets are primarily a place to deal drugs. Then looking at the, the numbers, the results for 2016, we found 19 crypto markets in total. We analyzed only eight but there were 19 with 400 listings as a minimum. And that was up from just one uh, in 2013. We identified 60,000 drugs listings. So that's almost 60% of all listings. And that's a really a, a six-fold increase since 2013. In total, again, looking at those feedbacks, we calculated or we estimated uh, over 90,000 drugs transactions, which is a threefold increase since 2013. And finally, that culminated into a total revenue in one month of 40 million, which was a doubling since 2013. So that 14 million, um, the 12 million here is illicit drugs only. The 21 million if, is if we scale that up using this 80% of uh, listings that we were able to capture. Um, is that a lot? Um, it, it sounds like a lot in one month. 
but if you compare that to what's happening offline, it's actually peanuts. Um, the, um, it's very difficult to measure the offline drug market, uh, but we have a reasonably reliable estimate, estimate for the retail market in Europe. So uh, mind you, this is Europe only. It's 2.3 billion uh, a month euros. So um, that's really more than a, a factor of 100 uh, difference. And what is being sold? Well, the revenues are dominated by um, cannabis and stimulants like cocaine, uh, ecstasy, uh, MDMA, and prescription drugs. And cannabis and, and stimulants are uh, taking up more than 50%, more than half of the, uh, of the total revenues. And if you include uh, MDMA, ecstasy, and prescription drugs, you capture 85% of the total market. So it's really primarily those um, party drugs, recreational drugs, uh, that are dominating the market. And how does that compare to the offline uh, distribution of different substances? It's actually quite similar. Um, so for cannabis, about 30% is about the same. Uh, stimulants like cocaine, it's about the same. But there are two exceptions. First of all, um, ecstasy. Um, and ecstasy is relatively big on crypto markets. Whereas in the, to in the offline retail market, it's, uh, it's uh, marginal. And the other exception is heroin. So the very addictive... Uh, drugs that um, with dependent users uh, is still uh, a big chunk of the offline market, whereas it's, uh, it's uh, hardly so on the crypto markets. And you can try to explain that by um, thinking of uh, the drugs that are being sold on crypto markets allow for planning. They are party drugs. You, know? you can take a few uh, weeks, order them online, and then uh, go partying with your, uh, with your mates. Whereas uh, for the, the drugs, when you're a dependent user, you need your daily fix. Um, this might not be the best way of doing it. Now, looking at how many revenues vendors make on a monthly basis, there are a couple of very, very successful ones. Uh, in the month that we analyzed, uh, there was one who banked more than $270,000 just in one month. But... Um, but, and, uh, and that one uh, had 1,700 transactions in, in, in one month. But overall, the average was only nine for across all vendors, only nine transactions. Um, and more than half did not make more than $1,000 a month. So really, for most vendors, this can't be their main uh, in source of income. It's just a little extra. And then finally, looking at the... Uh, the, where vendors are coming from uh, and what the market shares are, um, market leader is the U.S. More than a third of all revenues uh, go to the to the United States, followed by country U.K., which is the biggest in Europe. Congratulations. Um, and the third one is Australia, and I can say a bit more about that because that has some significance about sh uh, for shipping routes. Thirdly. Um, Germany, and finally, and this was what uh, the Dutch government was very interested in, of course, was the Netherlands with 7.1%, which is the fifth country, but on a per capita basis, it's by far the largest. Um, so to answer that first question, is this pivotal role extending in the online wor world, we could say wholeheartedly yes. 
and looking at the destinations, um, first of all, as Giacomo showed, actually not everyone shows uh, or is very picky. Some say um, willing to ship anywhere. Some say um, uh, it's a summit. For some, it's unknown. So the biggest category here was uh, that it was unknown the the shipping destination. But where we could analyze it, uh, it was those same main markets that that I showed early on uh, is where most drugs are being sold. And when we analyze the combination of those vendor countries and shipping destinations, we found that actually most of the transactions um, are intra-regional. So they stay within the continent. Um, so most drugs is shipped within the US or within North America, within the EU, within Europe, and within uh, Australia and New Zealand. Okay, you, can, you can also start explaining that. Uh, by uh, thinking of how easy it is relatively to ship within countries and, and it's fairly difficult uh, to ship across continents because the risks of being intercepted is much bigger. So, to um, wrap up in sum, um, first of all, crypto markets are primarily marketplaces for drugs. I showed you 70% of, uh, of all vendors sell drugs. It's primarily recreational drugs, such as cannabis, cocaine, ecstasy, that are popular. And when you compare it to offline trade, it's really just a niche market. So still relatively small. Looking at trends, um, illicit trade via crypto markets has grown quite considerably. And that, that has been the case despite some high-profile takedowns and, and scams. And finally, vendors are based primarily in the Western world. But the role of crypto markets in facilitating you know, international, um, global drug trade seems to be fairly limited. So that brings me back to the key slide. And uh, I see a gun again, so that's the, the key for Giacomo to, uh, <laughs> to show that. Top gun. Yeah, thank you. Right, so you've seen the results of the drug study and um, roughly a year later, this study was over, we thought about repeating the exercise, but this time looking at a different market, the firearms and explosives market. Um, our project was, well, this specific project was not funded by, uh, we didn't have a client, we didn't have a specific government that was interested in the research question, but it was funded by a UK Research Council or to be more specific, uh, by kind of a joint venture between different research councils called uh, the Partnership for Crime, Conflict, and Security Research. So it was a research grant, and this allowed us to really tailor our research, our research questions and methodologies to the specific uh, issue we were investigating, which, as you will see in a minute, if you approach this uh, just through the lenses of scale and volume, the results that you will get will be negligible when compared to the drugs market. But you really get yourself into a different mindset. If you're talking about firearms and explosives, what is the risk of one gun being sold on the dark web and handing you know, uh, uh, in the hands of someone that has very bad intentions? Usually when you buy drugs, you either buy them to use them or you buy them to resell them to others 
but you can say that harm is almost self-inflicted. When you're thinking about weapons, you're buying something, and unless you're doing it to commit suicide, chances are that you're going to, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going to harm others. So it's just a different uh, mindset and, and framing of the problem. And to give you a comparison, one year later when we redid the study, we we crawled and scraped 12 crypto markets, so from 8 to 12. We found 167,000 listings, so the volume of listings went up significantly over the course, you know, between the gap of the two uh, research studies. Um, however, the number of relevant listings, and this really reinforces the point that Stein was making, and by relevant listings we mean all the listings that dealt with uh, weapons, firearms, explosives, so anything that goes boom, or that is related to things that go boom, uh, was just short of a thousand. So if you look, the you know, the, the volume of listings we had to deal with was a lot lower compared to the drugs uh, study. And this wasn't necessarily a limitation. It was, in my view, it was actually an opportunity because it gave us the opportunity to really go beyond the numbers, but we did a detailed review of all the descriptions and the texts that were associated with each one of those uh, listings, trying to cross-check information between different markets, try to understand, you know, if a vendor didn't disclose one piece of information on market A, maybe we could find the same vendor active on market B and we could cross-check the two listings. So having less listings to deal with allowed us to do a much more uh, detailed analysis, qualitative analysis, not only quantitative. Um, why did we decide to focus on, on firearms? This study started in November 2016. So Europe was just uh, coming out of two years where between terrorist attacks and mass shootings, the concept of armed assault uh, seemed to really have picked up. So there was a lot of coverage and a lot of co security concern related to either lone wolf terrorists or people suffering of mental conditions or organized terrorist cells to uh, conduct, you know, shootings. So it was clear, a clearly identified security threat that was kind of echoed uh, in the law enforcement community by several concerns that the dark web was, uh, you know, bringing to the table around what role does the dark web play in facilitating gun trade. Um, on the policy side, there was, and probably there still is, even though the situation is improving, there wasn't a lot of clarity around uh, or understanding around the whole phenomenon. Um, you know, many, many people didn't even know exactly what is the dark web, is the dark web WhatsApp. That's kind of one of the common mistakes. We clearly see that we're talking about two very different things. And last but not least, there was a lack of scientific evidence. Um, Stein mentioned that, you know, uh, other academics have tried to analyze drugs trafficking on the dark web before us, but no one had tried to do this with uh, firearms. So there were a few, um, you know, journalists that tried to buy guns on the dark web, were scammed, and led to the conclusion the dark web is not an issue. You cannot buy firearms uh, on, on the dark web. So very anecdotal evidence. Uh, and this, the combination of these four elements really gave us the opportunity to come in and do something good. And what did we look at? We looked at four elements. We looked at the market characteristics, so similar to the drugs. We looked at what is for sale, 
Where does it come from? Where does it go to? How much does it cost? And how much money does do vendors make? Uh, we looked at trying to understand a little bit the practicalities around selling and buying guns on the dark web. You know, you can hide a pill in many ways. If you have to shift a rifle, the things are a little bit different. So how are the mechanics working? What is, you know, what are the main differences? How does it compare with offline black market? And last but not least, what are some of the lessons and implications that we can identify um, for law enforcement and policymakers? So given these four um, objectives, what do we find? We categorize our findings in three main uh, categories, products, transactions and prices, and then transit routes. So starting with products, we were looking for weapons and uh, firearms. So unsurprisingly, we found that firearms are the most uh, uh, commonly sold product on the dark web. Now this is, you will see here, for the sake of brevity, just one label firearms, but we could break down those 42% into uh, very uh, you know, detailed information because just like our colleagues did for the drugs, we did quite an extensive coding of all the listings looking at different firearms type, make, model, caliber, are they new, are they used, are they converted uh, toy guns into uh, live guns. We, we did the whole, the whole analysis. But when you're taking all the firearms together, they represent 42% of the um, relevant listings on the dark web. To our surprise, the second most common product that we found were digital goods, digital products. So you may ask yourself, what does that have to do with guns? Well, in this category, we have two uh, main types of, of products. First of all, user manuals. Manuals that tell you, you know, step by step, how to build your own homemade explosives, how to build your own bombs, how to make your own ammunition, how to convert your uh, uh, commercial or civilian firearm into a military-grade firearm by making it fully automatic, for example. So this type of manual is quite popular on, on the dark web. The second uh, type of product under digital the digital category were uh, files for 3D printing. So models of either fully functioning guns or components that you could print at home and then swap uh, into the original ones. And why would you want to do that? Because as some of you may know, the way that guns are uh, identified and traced is through the markings, the serial numbers that are located on several parts of the gun. So if you can print, you know, a component at home and swap it by replacing it, you know, in the original, you're basically making a gun potentially untraceable, more or less. So this was very interesting. And we also saw that other things like ammunition, accessories, and uh, other firearms-related products were rarely sold in isolation. They were more often uh, sold as kind of package deals. Um, so if you buy a gun, I'll give you 100 rounds of ammunition for free. So that was the, the type of deal that, that we found quite common. So how much does, you know, what are the prices and how much is the arms trafficking on the dark web worth? With all the limitations and caveats attached to our research, and I won't bore you with those, but there are quite a few, um, we found the following. First of all, the average prices for firearms on uh, crypto markets um, are generally higher than the equivalent price uh, offline. But the value for money that you get is a lot higher. To give you an example, let's say you have 
$1,000, pound, euro, whatever currency. You have 1,000 units you want to, to use to buy uh, an illegal gun. If you are in the UK, because of the very strong uh, gun laws, you are lucky if on the street you can get your hand out of a very old revolver uh, you know, that is maybe 60, 70, 80, 100 years old. However, with the same amount of money, if you go on the dark web, you can buy a Glock 17. This is the famous gun uh, that the, the person in, in Munich bought. So you can, you can see how you know, the value for money is, is significantly higher. When we're looking at the volume of transactions, and again, if you look at that, just at the numbers, you would say, okay, compared with, with drugs, if you remember, and I'm not going to ask questions to see how many of you paid attention to the statistics earlier, but on a monthly basis, we calculated roughly 136 sales per month. Now, when you're buying a pill or a drug, if you like it, you go back and buy it again, and then buy it again, because it's a consumable good. Guns are not. So these sales are cumulative. This figure is telling us that every month, on average, there are 136 new uh, transactions that are either focusing on firearms or to related, related products. So take that as you, as you want, but definitely the, the concept here is, is different when compared to drugs. And the value is uh, roughly $80,000 a month. Again, very different numbers uh, when compared to drugs, but the numbers might not necessarily be the best metric to, to compare the two. Um, shipping routes, just to wrap up, where, is this where are these things coming from and where do they go to? So when you're looking at the, the origin, um, North America is again gold medal. Um, Europe following uh, in second place. However, the main difference between the drugs and the firearms is becoming quite evident in this slide. So when you're looking at destination, while as Stein said, the majority of the drugs tend to remain within the region where they're traded, these results are telling us that arms trade on the dark web is potentially a global issues, the issue, which means that it doesn't matter where you are located in the world, 91% of the listings will be open for you to access. So, you know, if you're not happy with what you can find on the street, here you go. You can go and have access to a worldwide supply. Very quickly on the implications. Um, the dark web is really unlocking a new way for criminals to trade uh, illegal guns, uh, but also provides the opportunity to, let's call them occasional vendors who don't have an already well-established network to dispose of, of guns that they, for any reason, they decided they want to dispose of in an illegal way. Uh, however, the scale of the trade is so small uh, that the dark web is really never going to be the preferred method of procuring guns for insurgents that are fighting a civil war somewhere. You can't buy you know, guns by you know, hundreds. Uh, however, uh, the dark web could be the means of choice for uh, gangs, for lone wolves, terrorists, or small, uh, small cells, because you can buy five or six guns at a time. 
importantly, and we will see this in, in you know, uh, probably in Steve's presentation, that the dark web really removes not only geographical barriers, we've seen earlier how you have access to a worldwide market, but also personal barriers. Behind the veil of anonymity that the dark web provides, people with no criminal connections, I wouldn't have any idea if I wanted to buy an illegal gun in Cambridge or where to go, but I can definitely go home, log into the dark web, and access a network of suppliers. So there is really this kind of veil of anonymity and safety that allows people to engage in criminal activities that otherwise would be not accessible to them. And to introduce Steve's presentation, what are some of the responses, especially when we're talking about guns? Um, <clears throat> the dark web does not generate new guns. So all the control measures that already exist to tackle illicit arms trafficking remain valid. Everything that you can do to cut the supply of illegal, illegal guns remains valid. However, as we will see in a minute, law enforcement agencies can combine traditional investigation techniques like surveillance or controlled deliveries with new methods for either taking down markets or more importantly, gather intelligence and information through online surveillance. And the combination of all these techniques can probably, uh, well, can certainly achieve a lot uh, much better result than any of these ones applied in isolation. Thank you. Good evening. Um, now we're letting a policeman loose with the IT, the standard of slick presentations bound to go down, I'm afraid. Um, I'm a senior manager at uh, the National Crime Agency. Uh, in my previous life, I did 30 years in policing um, ended up as a detective superintendent and came across into soccer and then the NCA as a, a senior manager. Um, since about 2013, I've been uh, focusing down on the dark net. Um, it's an area of increasing threat despite some successes um, and it's one in which the government is um, finding actually some money to invest in terms of trying to counter this problem. But before I get uh, too busy with that, I'd like to introduce you to this man. He's an, um, a self-employed electrician called Dave, uh, James Malcolm, uh, age 31, and he was living in Sacramento. He was also a dark net vendor um, of firearms and, and other commodities, um, and he shipped worldwide. And I'd just like to let him tell you a little bit about what he's selling. On the pins left, it's in semi-auto. On the pins right, it's in full-auto. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so... The semi -auto. Yeah. Um, all the way over. You'll, you'll feel it quick. Oh, okay. That's cool. So uh, James here is, um, he, he, he was a, a vendor called Dark Mart. Um, he didn't normally meet people, you missed that bit because he met the two undercover um, officers in um, a cafe and told them that. 
told him how his, uh, one of his front men had just been sent away for life imprisonment in the US, um, but obviously got a bit greedy and made the mistake of uh, breaking his rule um, at a time when he was going to meet two undercover officers, which was his misfortune. But uh, the second clip is a slight escalation of the threat. They're just asking for a box to carry all their goodies away in, which included one and a half pounds of explosives um, and some uh, homemade uh, uh, detonation caps. Um, so uh, they probably drove very, very quickly back to uh, meet their colleagues and unload that uh, quantity of explosives. Uh, I certainly would have done. Um, so that, that's just putting um, a little bit of a real world finish to uh, Giacomo's presentation there. Um, on the drug side, why is a dark matter problem? Coming across the Atlantic to a uh, uh, quiet street, terraced houses in Newport in Wales um, last year. Unfortunately, uh, the guy living there was selling fentanyl um, worldwide at the time, and we'll meet him in a second. But I just wanted to, to demonstrate those clips to just to show that uh, there are some quite serious things coming out of the dark net. Um, so uh, popular sort of conception of uh, Tor um, and the dark net, uh, you're untraceable, you're anonymous, and, you know, it's not just Tor, and I'm not here to vilify Tor. Um, you can combine it with some pretty um, uh, robust uh, encryption, encryption technology, um, so tunnel VPNs, etc. Um, and most of the markets now are learning from the mistakes of their predecessors, and they're using some pretty formidable and resilient um, technology to try and deny law enforcement any, tr any trace of where they're hosted. Um, And I'm not here to vilify Tor. Um, and the slide up there, uh, Powering Digital Resistance is one of uh, the Tor project's own uh, offerings. Um, Tor fulfills some useful purposes. It protects some people who otherwise would be liable to be killed uh, for expressing their views. Um, most of the traffic going through Tor 
is going out into the clear net. It's a way of leaving behind your IP address. Giacomo gave me the hospital pass about explaining Tor. It's a three-hop relay. Um, it's like uh, your original communication gets wrapped in layers of encryption. And at each hop, it sheds one of those layers, which is the memory of where it's been. So you go to the entry node, sheds a layer. Go to the middle node, sheds another layer. And by the time it reaches the exit node, um, which is either going out into uh, the clear net, or it's going in, into a darknet market, it's forgotten uh, where it's been effectively, um, and you can't trace where it's been, really. Um, and um, it's not just full of... Tor, apart from being a medium of communication, a safe medium of communication, where you, can't, you don't have to give your location away, um, it's also a platform to host things, but it doesn't just host criminality. Um, it does host things like the New York Times Onion site. Um, it does host a version of Facebook. But most of what's hosted in there is actually criminal. Um, and it's not all Tor's fault um, about those platforms and people knowing how to get there. YouTube there, um, if you look at the search, you probably can't even see it, but it's basically buy drugs. And it will take you to a site which will tell you how to do that. Um, went on Amazon, and that'll tell you how to set up a darknet site. So there's plenty of stuff out there. Um, it's not just uh, the Tor project at all. Um, what is Tor? It's security by design or privacy by design, not by trust. In other words, it doesn't have any backdoors. It doesn't build any backdoors into what it's doing. Um, it doesn't log, really, what's going on. Um, the Tor project doesn't keep log files. Um, it's decentralized, so it hasn't got a single hub you can track down to take down. Um, and it, it provides the privacy or security in two key contexts. Um, it removes any metadata which will indicate where you are if you're a Tor user. And also, uh, secondly, it'll uh, prevent uh, you giving any trace of what operating system or type of technology you're using at your end, uh, which is normally interrogated through the browser by um, sites that you go on. It doesn't accept cookies, etc. And there's no domain name service, no DNS service there. So it's not very easy to find out what onion addresses are unless you actually know about them and go there. Um, Tor um, has some other applications within it. It's got Ricochet, a chat uh, facility, um, and it's got Secure Drop, which is one of the things journalists use to contact um, sensitive sources so they don't actually compromise the source or uh, compromise their anonymity. Um, a Tor hidden service is, in its crudest sense, fusing or gluing two Tor circuits together. Um, and producing a site in the middle. Um, according to Roger Dingline, who's uh, one of the co-founders of the Tor project, uh, when he was speaking in September 2016, he said there are about 7,000 um, uh, hidden service websites. Um, and as I said, not all of them are criminal. Quick reminder, the reason I'm here is because we're number two on that list. 
Um, and a slide here also from Rand, but um, one I think is um, a little bit important is that um, although it's a very small proportion of the drug sales, um, the actual wholesale trade in the darknet market, not just retail, um, makes up about 25% of the revenue. Um, Operation Onimus, Silk Road 2, November 2014, same time as Liam Lyberg was being arrested in uh, Newcastle to prevent a mass casualty shooting. Um, a number of websites were taken down, but most famously Silk Road 2. Um, it took a, a wide range of um, member states uh, in Europe and uh, international partners to take that down. The UK played a reasonably full part. Um, there are quite a few arrests uh, in the terms of arrests. There were more arrests in the UK than anywhere else. But then, of course, as you've already heard, we happen to have more vendors, probably. Um, and then we move on to uh, more recent times, June, July last year, when there was a synchronized takedown of Alpha Bay and Hansa Market, a bit of a sting operation because... Alpha Bay was taken down. Law enforcement didn't show his hand. He just took it offline. A lot of people were suspecting something was wrong, and they went to one of the more popular markets, the third largest at the time, Hansa Market, which was actually being run by the Dutch because they'd taken it over about a month earlier. Um, and uh, that gave an intelligence dividend. But um, after what we call the FUD, what they call the FUD, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt, comes the Hydra effect. In both cases I just mentioned, Onimus and then Bayonet um, and Grafsack, which are two operations that took down the two more recent uh, markets, um, there was a, a lull where people were full of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and then the markets just started to take off again. And uh, uh, Alpha Bay and Hansa Market were bigger than Green, uh, bigger than Silk Road 2, and after Alpha Bay and Hansa Market were taken down, the one that was number two at that time, Dream Market, is now bigger than Alpha Bay ever was. So um, there is this displacement factor, which is a, um, a problem for law enforcement. Um, I'm going to talk uh, mainly about fentanyl, uh, because um, it's what we've been concentrating on. It's one of the biggest threats at the moment. Um, Fentanyl in a basic analogue form is um, 100 times stronger than morphine and about 60 times stronger than heroin. However, in its um, more toxic variants, um, carfentanyl, for instance, that is, again, 100 times stronger than fentanyl. So really, really potent. And you can see there in the bottom slide uh, what a lethal dose could be, and that, that probably is on the generous side. Uh, Carfentanil is right next to the uh, the coin there, um, and this is somebody that was selling it in the UK. Um, gave it away a little bit with the name UK Bargains. Um, it was on Alpha Bay, um, and he was doing such good business when we started to take an interest in him that he was having trouble answering his emails. Um, in fact, it was um, uh, several people behind this moniker, and. Uh, we were interested in it because it was not just a problem for the UK, it was also a problem for our uh, North American colleagues in RCMP, FBI, and some of the other American agencies. Um, 
bit of safety warning, but it just makes it clear that they knew what they were selling and can be lethal. And carfentanil, and this is the one that's 100, 100 times stronger, so 100,000 times stronger than uh, morphine. This is um, going a reasonably um, competitive range. And that's how it was packaged up, really, and sent through the postal system as far as parcels. Um, the uh, names have been changed to protect the guilty, and the, uh, the return address was made up. But uh, possibly could be somebody does actually exist. Um, and uh, inside you've got this impermeable membrane, heat sealed inside a fold of uh, paper, made up to look really like a, a business, uh, business package. And uh, this is the team that uh, were selling that. The two main protagonists there were uh, 21 and 22 years old. They didn't have any really criminal convictions to speak of. Um, and uh, if you remember the slick advertising, etc., they had there, this is the reality. This is, this is not after we searched it. This is before we searched it. Um, but uh, it's pretty much a lab. They, 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 it, it, it's capable of production if there was a bit of glassware in there. But, um, and, and, uh, so it was, it was getting towards a production facility. It was definitely a processing facility. Um, and just to show the concern they exercised to their customers, it's even more explicit on the top of that lid, um, which is actually spice, um, half a kilo of spice in there. Um, and it probably was evil. Um, but uh, there was also half a kilo of carfentanil in there, which is the biggest seizure we've had in there. Um, shipping globally, obviously predominantly in the UK, uh, and that's for reasons of logistics. People like, you've heard about the, the, the economics of the darknet markets, but people like to have um, uh, next day deliveries, a bit like Amazon Prime. Um, and um, that said, the FBI uh, were targeting, uh, in parallel with us, um, three people who were reselling um, the uh, commodities. So basically, what was happening was they were shipping a wholesale amount out to some American resellers who were just basically reselling that brand, but locally, so they could do the next day deliveries there. So it's an interesting economic model. Um, and there were thousands of unique customers worldwide. Um, I know what we've seen up there about um, profits, etc. but uh, take it from me, they're in the millions because we're tracing them at the moment, um, particularly around fentanyl, uh, because anyone selling to the North American market is making a lot of money. Um, and this is a second guy, um, Soviet there, um, he was looking for resellers. He was um, uh, also had a health warning there, but he was trying to build his customer base up. So he was doing buy one get one free. Um, he did Royal Mail tracking, and he had a tip jar where you could uh, give a fraction of uh, Bitcoin if you like this product to help him set up his lab. And we had to fulfill press on order when we arrested him. And he was the guy in Newport who the the men in the white suits and the uh, breathing masks were going into arrest. And they needed that because of this, this product there. Um, Soviet bear, again, mid-20s, 
no criminal corrections, um, and now doing eight years courtesy of um, Cardiff Crown Court. Should mention quickly, we've had another one, Savage Henry Revolution, um, uh, mainly a guy called Ross Brennan, but also um, a sidekick called Aaron Gleville. Um, that was almost an accidental f uh, fine um, disturbance call to the address by local police, and they found Ross Brennan, uh, I think he was in his underpants with a samurai sword, but when they were dealing with him, they noticed a lot of chemicals around, um, and they realised they were in a production site. Um, and at York Crown Court last year, he uh, Ross, Ross Brennan got um, um, 13 years imprisonment, um, and that was again with little or no convictions. Uh, and why we were doing this? Well, at the point when we started targeting UK bargains, um, there was um, a severe upsurge in uh, deaths uh, arising from synthetic opiates in the UK, um, and we've um, basically uh, a lot of that was actually linked to UK bargains in one way or another. Um, apart from doing the online sales, they were also selling into a local supply chain to boost their profits, um, a local heroin supply chain. So they were putting carfentanil, which is a tranquilizer used for large game animals like elephants and rhinoceroses, no human use. They were putting that into heroin um, so they could cut the heroin right back um, and put a minimum amount of heroin in, maximize their profit by adding a little bit of carfentanil. The trouble is you can't mix a little bit of carfentanil with that, that uh, homogeneously. So you had effectively lumps or concentrations of opiate which started to kill people. And in that area, at the time UK Bargains was active, there were over 70 deaths uh, in Yorkshire and Humberside. Um, with that and a number of other operations, which are the lines there, which I can't speak about all of them because some of them are still going to court, we started to bring the death toll down. Um, and it's not just elderly heroin addicts. There were a lot of young people, as you can see from the pie chart there, you can make out that. But, um, there's over, well over a third of the um, of that pie chart is people under the age of um, uh, 44, uh, 34, 34, sorry, under the age of 34. Um, and uh, although it's mainly males, uh, a number of uh, females have died, unfortunately, as well. Um, so it's all in all a tragic sort of uh, circle of trade. And... How do, we, how do we track them down? Well, Roger Dingledine gave you a big clue if you go to that link in September uh, last year. Um, that was when he was in a debate, um, a, a recorded debate uh, on YouTube um, with, uh, amongst others, Keith Becker from the Department of Justice when they were questioning whether Tor should exist or should we switch off Tor. Um, and Roger Dingledine, um, highlighted a number of these um, uh, exploits, as it were, for law enforcement. Um, how do we catch people? Not by breaking tour mainly, it's uh, by actually flaws in their operating security or their delivery mechanism. Uh, they make a mistake and we get lucky and we have to have both ends of that. Uh, not only do they have to be unlucky, we have to be lucky. Um, exposing browser vulnerabilities and using browser exploits. Yeah, or you can find out things about uh, if they compromise their own browser, or you can find out a lot more about that. And 
um, metadata fingerprinting, sometimes they make a mistake and leave something behind. Um, tour traffic analysis is uh, very expensive, not easily done, um, and is nation state at most level. Um, so, uh, although it can be probably more effective, it's not the easiest done and is very costly. And then, as you've seen, the old-fashioned law enforcement undercover infiltration, um, and not, last but not least, virtual currency tracking tracks. One of the vulnerabilities is if it's a, a hidden service, it's paid for um, normally in virtual currency, quite often Bitcoin, and we can we can sometimes get on the end of that and start tracking the trace. If it's an audit, blockchain's auditable. What makes it difficult is the the uh, customers um, are anonymous. Um, if you can track it. Uh, take it back to a um, Bitcoin exchange or virtual currency exchange, maybe we can find out uh, who's benefiting from that sort of a flow of currency, virtual currency. And um, sorry, a bit of a rush, but um, that's the end of my presentation. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm sure everyone will agree that was really interesting. Unfortunately, we don't have time for a little summary of what Judith was going to say tonight. Not if we want to have time for everybody to have, uh, well, a few people to have a chance to ask questions tonight. We've got a few roving microphones going around. So if anybody would like to start the questions off, and if we could speak into the microphone. Anybody like to ask a question? In the middle, lady in the black. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to the logistics of the, the um, sending out of the goods on the marketplace, particularly with, with um, guns and ammunition. It's like, how does that, how is it actually shipped? Um, and is there any kind of insurance in any way if your goods are intercepted? Right. Um, you want to take more questions first? Yes. Right. Oh, can we take <clears throat> a few more questions first so we can get a few in a row? I was just wondering if uh, we could be more proactive in the market as uh, the police. So why aren't we, if the guns are such a small portion, why aren't we just buying all the guns? As in the police force and then using regular investigative methods to find the source of the guns but taking them off the streets and the kind of a two-part, the drugs, buying the drugs, giving bad reviews, that makes the buyers less um, likely to be bought from in the future. Can we have one more question? Thank you. Anybody else in the middle, in the grey? How accurate would you say your study was based on the idea that not everyone would give feedback and based on the fact that even an eBay listing would say it ships worldwide, but you'd probably be more likely to buy one that said it came from the UK? Just have you got any scope on actually how accurate your study was? Because obviously, and there would be scams as well in that that you would have listed. Well, uh, I'll take the first. Um, the mechanics of shipping guns—they're um, usually disassembled. What is the okay? Um, they're usually disassembled and shipped in multiple parcels, uh, hiding components into things that may look less suspicious, so car stereos or um, 
toners or printers or any sort of uh, musical instruments. So things that, if scanned, uh, wouldn't give away the fact that you have, uh, you know, a metal-looking um, component in, in it. Of course, the bigger the gun, the more complicated it is. Um, and, and that's why we've seen also in our listings that some vendors offered uh, kind of dead drops. So instead of shipping it, and this is particularly true in another type of, of Dalkoff site, which is single vendor shops, but usually what they tell you is that, you know, they give you coordinates and you go and pick it up yourself. In terms of insurance, and this applies to all types of goods, uh, usually uh, uh, many markets offer a sort of escrow service. So when you make the payment, the payment is not released directly to the vendor, but the virtual currency is kept on hold until you receive the, the good, you say, I'm happy, and you give the authorization uh, to the market to, to release the payment to the vendor. So that's a sort of uh, assurance policy. Of course, there are, you know, scams are happening on both sides. So vendors do scam uh, buyers, but sometimes also the other way around, where buyers say that they never received the shipping, even if they know. I think the second one was directed at me. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a lot of good points made there, and um, uh, that, that some of that is being done. Um, the problem with the direct markets around, uh, for instance, uh, falsifying feedback, etc., is that uh, you have to do it on an industrial scale because there are an awful lot of sales there. So to actually affect someone's rating badly, um, you have to do it, A, credibly, and be quite industrially. Um, and you probably will get spotted doing it, um, which means that uh, you'll get banned, um, unfortunately, um, which uh, does happen. Um, the markets have, apart from the administrator sets them up, they do have moderators who police them. And if um, somebody's reputation is getting destroyed, then um, the moderators probably will step in if it's perceived to be law enforcement. Unfortunately, around firearms in particular, there is a lot of paranoia in the darknet markets about the existence of undercover officers. So um, nobody really trusts anybody in that orbit of the, um, in, in, that, in that particular uh, hidden service. Just to compliment on that, also, if you're, if you're buying guns, you're effectively funding uh, criminals. So you're also kind of perpetuating uh, and it's not allowed everywhere, uh, not on all countries. A um, couple of other questions. So the feedback rate uh, is, a, is a very good question. Uh, um, I mentioned that we, that, uh, we capture uh, about, that we have indications that 80% uh, of all transactions have uh, a feedback associated with it. So that means that we capture about 80% of the uh, transactions. And we know that... Um, through, um, for example, some uh, um, some takedowns uh, with law enforcement data, where they've actually evaluated the actual number of transactions and then compared that to the uh, to the feedback rate. So there are, there are various sources uh, of information that we can use, and it gives us an indication. Give or take, uh, it's about eighty percent. Um, how it's shipped, I think, on on the drugs side. Um, there is, uh, uh, in, on, on dark web markets, you've got the so-called stealth factor. It's a, it's a uh, kind of a, 
um, a way of uh, giving credit to a vendor's like great stealth. Uh, and a stealth is, a, is an indication of how well it's, it's packaged and how well it resembles something else. You can package a bag of pills quite easily uh, as a bag of coffee beans, for instance. Uh, what you also see a lot is they have, they mimic um, etiquettes or, or, or labels of actual companies. Um, I've heard reports of using, um, you know, not-for-profits and UNICEF, for instance, that they've used. So there, there are ways of really concealing the, uh, the packages in a way that it's not picked up. Another factor uh, is that um, the Netherlands, as I mentioned earlier, have become a bit of a um, really um, infamous source country, vendor country for, uh, for drugs. And so um, there's been increasing scrutiny on mail packages from the Netherlands in, uh, in the US, for instance, and in Australia. So what vendors have started offering is actually to ship from Germany, uh, for instance, and so to actually take the packages across the border and ship from Germany. Uh, so they're, you know, they keep responding to law enforcement and uh, being resilient to, um, uh, and really it's a cat and mouse game in that sense. And I'm sure Steve can talk about more. Yeah, um, just, just a couple of things on the back of that. Um, first thing is that this feedback is very important. It's almost crowdsourcing, um, you know, um, your uh, operational security. So you, you're getting feedback to improve your game. If your game is not very good, then you're going to get low ratings um, and then you're going to get sort of dropped down the league table as vendors and lose business. Um, so basically, when your customers tell you you're rubbish, you better listen because um, otherwise you're not going to be in business for very long. Um, but it does help you perfect your um, sort of methodology uh, for shipping. Um, the other thing is that in terms of um, what you can scrape, what you can't scrape is the, the sort of um, uh, encrypted chat um, and off-market deals, which tend to happen for the larger amounts. So there will be some large amounts of transaction which you just can't pick up in the scraping because they go into Wicker. Um, so they meet up on the market, the vendor meets his customer, customer wants more than they normally deal with, so they have a custom sale, and that tends to go off market. Um, and obviously the, the vendor benefits by not having to pay commission on it. Um, so um, that you're always gonna miss that unless you can get to the, uh, the market's back-end data. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have tonight. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much to the speakers.